0: This is Democracy on the Move. (music) Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, June 25, 2023. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. (music) Sam Fieldman from Wolfpack drops by to discuss the problems of corruption and special interests in our government and what we can do about it. But first, Dirt Road Radio wishes to address their backers and supporters, contributors, and friends. They would like to express their gratitude for your enthusiastic support of their Kickstarter campaign. Now, unfortunately, Dirt Road Radio fell short of the funding goal. However, they're still committed to telling a better story about rural America. So they're going to keep moving forward and relaunch a new campaign in the coming months. The response to everything they've created up to this point has been extremely encouraging, and everyone can see right away how it meets an important need in our communities. You can sign up for Dirt Road Radio newsletter by going to DirtRoadRadio.com and clicking on the newsletter link at the top of the page. We're talking with Sam Fieldman, National counsel for an organization called Wolfpack. That's Wolfpack as in P-A-C. The P-A-C part of it stands for Political Action Committee. What is Wolfpack's mission? Well, to build a citizen movement powerful enough to add an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that will break the stranglehold that corruption and special interests have on Congress. In short, Wolfpack aims to ensure a government of, by, and for the people. The current objective is to pass a measure in 34 states. So what is this measure? Well, basically, it's a constitutional amendment designed to fix our broken campaign finance system. In terms of power, constitutional amendments are above Congress and the Supreme Court, Therefore, such Supreme Court decisions like Citizens United can be effectively reversed. So FYI, the Citizens United Supreme Court decision made back in 2010 ruled that laws restricting independent political expenditures by corporations and unions are unconstitutional, arguing that such rules infringe on free speech rights. Essentially, this gave corporations First Amendment rights. This effectively permitted unlimited spending by corporations, unions, and other groups to influence elections, marking a major shift in campaign finance regulation. Now, since our nation's founding, there have been only 27 amendments to the Constitution. Amendments are, by design, a heavy lift. So how does Wolfpack plan to add a 28th Amendment? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Sam Fieldman has been a part of Wolfpack since the beginning. Sam is a graduate of Fordham Law School, and his personal motivation is to use the law as a tool to follow, instruction, follow the instructions of our founders to create a more perfect union. He began his legal career in the Public Integrity Bureau of the New York State Attorney General's office, investigating political corruption, most notably investigating a pay-to-play scheme involving private equity firms and the $100 million New York State Common Retirement Fund. After the Citizens United decision in 2010, Sam became motivated to study campaign finance law and how to fix the problems created, not just by that decision, but by all decisions of the court going way back to the 1970s. Sam has served in various roles within Wolfpack and currently works as an independent contractor, filling the role of National Council and as a member of the Leadership Council. So with all that, uh, Sam, thank you for joining us today on Democracy on the Move. Thank you. So let's get started with a statement of the problem. As noted on the Wolfpack website, the framers of the Constitution intended that the Congress of the United States of America should be dependent upon the people alone. But yes. that seems like such a quaint notion these days. I mean, everybody knows that money runs politics in the modern era, and people have actually become quite cynical about it. So, can you tell us a little more about the problem, its history, and how it threatens our democracy?
1: Sure. Um, you can find I'll give you a link to a YouTube video that has an hour-long discussion in-depth of all the legal cases. Uh, myself and a constitutional scholar, a friend of mine, Ken Chestic, uh, who's now in the Wyoming State Legislature. Um, go through all of the history of corporate personhood and campaign finance, Supreme Court decisions. Um, but it uh, over a span of about a hundred years, um, the court increased the concept of corporate personhood. Um, but up until uh, the 1970s, up until 1978, they had never extended the idea of of corporate personhood, which is really intended. And if you look at the old decisions as an analogy for where it's useful to we, the people, to give corporations that concept so that they can enter into contracts and, and do other things that they need to do for our benefit. Um, the idea of giving them free speech rights, uh, that never ent- entered into anyone's thoughts until 1978 um, uh, with the Supreme Court decision in, in which, uh, um, in uh, Bilotti, the First National Bank of Boston, and the later Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who's uh, quite conservative, uh, issued a dissent there where he pointed out this simply doesn't make any sense. We've never had a ruling on corporate personhood where it applies in this area. It doesn't make sense to apply to this area. And it's going to effectively um, ruin politics going forward. Uh, two years before that, there was a similar decision. A um, Uh, Buckley v. Vallejo. And and in that case, the the Supreme Court decided that um, money being spent in politics is itself speech. Uh, Up until that point, money was considered a tool for speech. And the Constitution has always allowed for uh, limitations on tools to be used for speech, as long as those limitations are reasonable, content neutral, and only limit the time, place, or manner of the speech. You couldn't limit the ability to spend for one party as opposed to another or on one message as opposed to another. You couldn't make the limits so great that they're unreasonable You can't, so that you can't effectively get out your message. But as long as the limits were reasonable content neutral and only impacted the time, place or manner of the speech, including tools like the corporate form or tools like uh, the enormous spending in uh, in the political sphere. Um, that was always considered reasonable up until that point. Um and that really those two cases really ended the uh the era of effective campaign finance law. Um we had going up until that point for decades um a period of time where things were certainly not perfect. They were things were quite bad in many ways, but they were slowly improving. We had uh, a huge labor movement in that time period from the early uh, 20th century up until the 1970s we had the civil rights movement um, when there were big scandals like Watergate there were new regulations aimed at trying to address it um, but starting in 1978 uh, in, 76, in the late 70s we saw a big turnaround in, in a lot of areas um, we've seen since that time period to today a complete stagnation in real wages productivity has continued to go up but the people themselves have not seen the benefits of any of that productivity. All of the, um, the benefits have gone to the people who are able to donate. And we've seen that in studies as well. When we've looked at the, uh, the political um, sphere in the way decisions are made in Congress, there's a famous study by Giles and Page that uh, showed that showed um, that showed that if you look at the correlation between what the people want and what Congress does, there's essentially no correlation there. But if you look at the correlation between what the the few who are able to donate large amounts to pol, uh, politicians, the lobbyists and the donors, and what Congress wants, there's a near-perfect correlation. Uh, so Congress is no longer responsive to the voters who put them in there. They're now responsive solely to the donors. By the time Citizens United came around, that problem was already severe. It was largely kicking a dead horse, but it did accelerate the problem at that point. And it's only gotten worse since then with decisions that have been made since um, that have ended state campaign finance laws in uh, 2012, ended the uh, the aggregate limit for individuals in 2014, and more decisions that have been ongoing since then and continue, and continue to come on down the pipeline. Uh, a recent decision that made uh, transparency much more difficult um, than the ability of uh, states in some circumstances to collect information uh, to make transparency uh, realistic. And we've, we're seeing more and more of these kinds of things coming down the line.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that uh, study by Guilens and Page. That's uh, Professor Martin Guilens of Princeton and Benjamin Page of Northwestern University. And uh, they looked at more than 20 years of data to... Uh, answer a fairly simple question, which was, you know, does government listen to the people? And they looked at like, um, I'm just filling out some some background here, but they, sure. they actually analyzed about 2,000 public opinion surveys. And uh, from what I recall, uh, they said something like that uh, the opinions of the bottom 90% of income earners in America has essentially no impact at all on uh, on the results uh, on, on legislation, unless you're part of the economic elite. You know, and okay. uh, the bottom line is, you know, just follow the money, right? And so um, I'm right with it, what you say. And what's interesting, too, about this is is the secondary effects are the effects on our economy, the effects on yeah. um, productivity going up, but um, but wages stagnating, you know, adjusted for is inflation. Wagn- wages have stagnated since the 1970s and 1980s, and um, that's very interesting. And what, what I also find interesting, too, is... We are, as a society, we are so used to equating dollars with votes is that if you talk to or if you listen to any news reporter that talks about politics and and, uh, particularly in in the era of campaigns, um, they will always cite what campaigns are bringing in more money and Mm -hmm. as if that's going to uh, determine the outcome. And, And the fact is there is a high correlation between the amount of money that you're able to pull in. And the amount of uh, and your your chances of winning your, your your election.
1: I forgot the percentage, but I think it's over well over ninety percent, if I recall.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, that's very very good. Yeah, it, it's uh, you know one doesn't always think about the secondary effects of this because you know we talk about a stagnated economy or um, you know people just uh, getting poorer and poorer, uh, the the disappearing middle class, and this is all a result of corporations doing what they would normally do, right? They're trying to optimize profits and everything. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with a corporation trying to optimize profits, but uh, the thing is they've taken over our government uh, with mm-hmm. some of these decisions that you've talked about. Um, good. It just, uh, just out of curiosity, why the word wolf? I mean, it's kind
1: of off topic here, but why the word wolf with uh, Wolfpack? Uh, Wolfpack was founded by uh, by Cenk Huger um, For... Whether you like Jank Yuger, don't like Jank Yuger, you can join Wolfpack, and you're welcome here. Regardless, we have people who have all kinds of feelings, both positive or negative, about him uh, within Wolfpack. Uh, he founded it, but just does not run it, um, and uh, is is just uh, an enthusiastic supporter um, at this point. Um, but when he founded it, the the message that he founded it with was, "They're not coming for us; we're coming for them," um, and uh, The idea of a wolf was that it's an aggressive animal that works especially well together. Um, We are talking about, we're uh, going through a a rebranding where the early phases, it's possible the name is going to change. I think it's more likely we're just going to get rid of uh, the, we're going to add a K at the end of pack to make it wolf pack with a K. I think that's the most likely, Um, but uh, stay tuned for that. Regardless, wolf-pack.com, our current website, you'll always be able to find us there. Yeah, battle yeah. forward to whatever our new website is.
0: Well I, I like it because it's really easy to remember and it's really easy to visualize so and and you're right. I didn't like are... it at first, but it grew on me. Oh it did okay yeah yeah. Well it's um, you know the, the, the symbol of aggression maybe may be incorrect because uh, wolves are are uh, they're pack animals they they cooperate with each other to get the job done right So a wolf yeah. by himself doesn't survive but altogether as a pack they survive
1: quite well. Yeah, the famous uh, Rudyard Kipling quote you see in, a, in the bottom of a lot of people's emails within Wolfpack, uh, the strength of the pack is the wolf and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Oh, okay. Good. Oh, good symbolism there. I like that. Okay. So
0: So uh, let's talk about the solution. A constitutional amendment overrides Congress and the Supreme Court, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, it could effectively unwind the damage caused by this attitude that corporations are people. And this attitude, by the way, uh, you know, you, you've... you've um, You've nailed it all the way back to like the 1970s, but I would go back as far as Dartmouth College versus Woodward decision back in 1819, because it was kind of the beginning of the idea of shielding corporations from excessive state control and uh, setting a precedent for protecting corporate rights, uh, thereby, in a way, facilitating the growth and power of corporations in subsequent decades. Um, That's
1: where the video on our website
0: that I mentioned starts, and I'll I'll share a link with that. Perfect. Okay, good. Yeah, share the link with that, because I'll put that in our, in our, uh, in our links as well. Um, so Wolfpack's solution is, uh, as a single constitutional amendment, is going to have to be mighty powerful to toss out, you know, 200 plus years of, you know, apples out of the apple cart. Could you expand on how this seemingly singular solution will fix? First of all, yeah, how will it fix the problem? And later on, we can talk about the mechanics of how the actual uh, constitutional
1: amendment works. But how does it fix the what- problem? There, there isn't such thing as a singular solution. Um, that's why it's important that we work together with other groups that are trying to tackle this same issue using other approaches. Um, and I, we don't see ourselves in competition with those other groups. I know uh, many of those groups agree with that. Uh, some of them don't, uh, and, and I hope that those groups change that, that stance. Um, but groups like represent us and American promise that, that are trying uh, to do other things to tackle the same solution. Uh, Represent Us is a good example. They they go for state-level legislation that tries to lessen the problem. Um, but that uh, state-level legislation is currently trying to create the best laws that they can that won't be overturned by the Supreme Court. If you have a constitutional amendment, the amendment itself will not solve all of the problems. What it would do is allow the work that people like Represent Us are doing, um, allow them to have more flexibility and more freedom to create not the best laws that won't be overturned by the Supreme Court, but the best laws to solve the problem of the corrupting influence of money in politics. Uh, And that would create a much better situation. But it won't change overnight. The constitutional amendment would allow for better legislation and better legislation will slowly fix the problem.
0: But the state legislatures these days—I um, know you're up in Massachusetts. I'm in Missouri. The state legislature in Missouri is just gone completely off the rails lately with all kinds of uh, conservative issues and is extremely polarizing within the own, within our own state here. Uh, they don't seem to be very uh, receptive to the idea of having a constitutional amendment because, well, they're enjoying the fruits of of their labor at this point, right? They're they're enjoying this um, this this ride here. Many of the, many of the um, as a matter of fact, many of the state representative districts and a few state Senate districts have gone uncontested. The, uh, you know the, the, In other words, Republicans show up, but no Democrats show up or no independents show up or nobody from a third party shows up. And um, they kind of like it that way. So how it, it seems to be kind of a heavy lift to talk to state legislatures to get them on board with this idea and you need to get, what, 34 states, you said, something like that?
1: Yeah, 34 to propose the amendment and 38 to ratify it. It's a very high bar and intentionally so. Uh, but you'd be surprised, uh, in, and in two ways. First of all, the state legislature will never be as corrupt as Congress because the state legislators who are the most corrupt are the ones that go to Congress. Uh, that's like the the major leagues of, of corruption right there. So the, the state legislature, they're, they're just the minors. Um, and many people at the state legislature are doing wonderful work um, in in ways that are much more rare at Congress. Uh, they are actually willing to listen to people, um, but there are limits to that. Uh, ultimately, it is still a game of power, and that is something that we've um, that we've encountered uh, early on. Before we had real opposition, we were able to um, we were able to get our resolutions passed simply by explaining to state legislators. Uh, what the problem was and what the solution was and showing them the research and they would see it and do research themselves and understand that that was correct and then be motivated to solve the problem. Uh, That was true until we had organized opposition. Once we had organized opposition that was putting pressure on uh, leadership and then the leadership was putting pressure on the state legislators, um, we saw that disappear. And actually two of our five resolutions that we ratified Uh, that that we uh, passed through, through state houses uh, were later rescinded. Um, And uh, what we've retooled in the last couple of years during the pandemic, uh, we took that opportunity to uh, do a lot of self-reflection and self-examination and completely retool our strategy. Um, Our approach is still the same of getting the resolutions to call a convention, to propose an amendment to uh, fight the corrupting influence of money in politics but the method of how we go about getting those resolutions passed has changed. Um, we now have a new theory of power, which is that really what we need is not just to convince legislators that we're right. We've had legislators who said, yes, we see that you're right. We agree with you, uh, but we can't do what you're asking because uh, my bill that I want is going to get killed by uh, by the leadership of the legislature. Um, we had Sweeney and, um, the the Senate president in New Jersey uh, in his lame duck after losing to a completely unknown truck driver, um, uh, because people were fed up with his corruption. Nobody was voting for the truck driver. They had no idea who he was. Uh, they were voting against Sweeney and his corruption. And then after he lost that election in the lame duck session, he forced a rescission of our resolution through, um, we need to have the power to push back against that. And that power comes from the people. Um, and that's where, I, you know, one thing that you pointed out, uh, you said that they have a lot of conservative priorities. That's not a problem for Wolfpack. Wolfpack, well, it was founded by Cenk Uygur, the reason he founded a separate organization and it's not part of the Young Turks and it's completely separate from, from uh, that group is because it needs to be independent and it needs to be nonpartisan. And it is. Um, I've spent a, a great deal of time, um, and especially in the last few years. Uh, with conservatives and with Republicans. And while I may be uh, left-wing myself uh, and have been a a Democrat since... I think I registered as an independent in 1998 and a Democrat in 2000. But uh, Wolfpack is nonpartisan, and I found uh, a group that I work with that's a coalition of of different groups that work on different issues um, called Academy of States. um, At their at their conference last year, every single speaker was a supporter of campaign finance reform and a supporter of the work that Wolfpack is doing, uh, which was not the case for literally any of the other groups uh, that participated. None of the others uh, enjoyed um, unanimous support from uh, uh, from the, the people who were speaking there that day. Um, but we did. And for a lot of the people on the right, One of the issues that motivates them quite a bit is um, is uh, the deficit and the debt. Um, I think at the federal level, members of Congress are using that largely as a political tool. They're not really serious about it. But a lot of the the people, uh, the real people behind it are serious about it. Um, And what a lot of them have come to realize is that the biggest driver of our debt and deficit uh, is the special interest spending. And that's why quite a few conservatives uh, that that I know have come on board and testified for Wolfpack and supported the work that we're doing, um, and uh, and are now big supporters of us, even though I disagree with them on pretty much everything else. Yeah, that is a tough nut to crack,
0: and and I, I picked on Missouri because Missouri is run by by uh, what I would call extremist conservatives, but I, I can see that um, people. From the Democratic Party would be maybe re- equally reluctant because um, you know they know where their meal ticket is, right? They know where they're they're, yeah. they're getting fed. So it, let's get to the constitutional amendment itself. I read on your website that there really you don't have any wording for the Constitution yet. Um yes. is that is that by intention? Because how does w- wouldn't it be better? Um, Well, for example, one of your competitors, not competitors, but one of your your, uh, cooperative organizations would be moved to amend, and they Mm -hmm. actually put their uh, proposed amendment right there online. And I know that may not be the final wording if they they ever do get to that point, but there's got to be something that you have to put out there, I would think, so that people have something they can point to and say, okay, this is what we're going for. Uh, Do you have any words as to how the constitutional
1: amendment would be worded? Um, we're talking about uh, at at some point soon, probably having a list of proposals that we uh, agree that we endorse and agree with. But ultimately, we agree with any of the we, that, that's not decided. That's something that we're talking about. Um, but uh, ultimately, we agree with any of the proposals that will solve the problem. And different people have different ideas of what the best solution is. In my view, the best solution is the one that can get proposed and ratified by thirty eight states. Um, but there's several out there that are excellent. Uh, they, um, like you said, Move to Amend's language is very good. American Promise has some very good language out there. Uh, we the People Massachusetts have endorsed a um, uh, language that they call the We the People Amendment that is also very good. Uh, any of these that could actually get through uh, the proposal and ratification process, I think would do an excellent job. There may be some that are stronger than others. There are some that I think are better worded than others, in my personal opinion. Um, ultimately, the process, though, there's only two entities that are able to actually officially write the amendment, and that's either Congress or a convention called by 34 states uh, limited to that purpose. Those are the only entities that are authorized to actually write amendment language. Um, so Wolfpack has been very hesitant to put language out there uh, that would uh, kind of hamper that, um, that process. Uh, there, there are others that have done so and, and allies of ours uh, whose language we support very much. Uh, we find that when we start talking about specific amendment language, uh, people start seeing it as a competition. Um, there was a resolution in Minnesota uh, that we had nothing to do with. Uh, it was uh, before Wolfpack had a team there uh, early on, like 2012 or so, uh, trying to get a, a convention on this issue. And that uh, convention proposal had specifically worded language in it. And the entire debate was about the specific wording of that language, um, which uh, it was an issue partially because there's um, a lot of scholars who say that a convention call can't even have specifically worded language uh, or at least can't limit the con- the convention to specifically worded language it can limit it only to the topic and then they have to be free to deliberate at least a little bit within there um so that's why we've never uh or I mean we did very early on but we stopped um quite a long time ago putting out specifically worded uh language uh, and instead just you know endorse the the efforts of others who do so yeah yeah, it, it seems like there should be
0: something, uh, maybe you know, like I say, some topics or maybe some bullet points. Um, but I get it. I mean, each each state. Now, do all states have to have the same language when they uh, go through their legislatures, or can they have different language to in order to call a constitutional convention on this?
1: Um, I, states have to limit in their state resolutions. They have to limit it to a specific uh, topic, and then you have to have. Well, I mean, they can propose an open call. Uh, That hasn't been done since, I think, 1929 as the last state that proposed an open convention call. Um, But uh, generally speaking, states propose a limited convention call um, and uh, then the convention is limited to that subject matter. But states don't propose specific amendment language. Um, There's some disagreement among scholars about this, but the vast majority say that if a state limits it to specific amendment language, then it would either be invalid or um, or it could only work with other states that propose the exact same language. Uh, most say it would be invalid because the convention needs to have at least some ability to deliberate. Um, and uh, that's why our call limits it on the topic. Um, and every one thing that every scholar, there are some areas about Article five where scholars disagree. There is one thing that literally every scholar in in the peer-reviewed literature agrees with. Um, And you won't get this from op-eds that you see. They are completely divorced from the actual scholarly writing on the subject. Every piece of scholarly writing on the Article 5 convention process agrees that there's no way a new limited convention call could possibly lead to an amendment on any other topic. None of the groups that are trying to get a convention call on any other issue are trying to use Wolfpack's calls. Um, Wolfpack has no interest in trying to use the calls from the balanced budget people. Uh, a limited call can only be used to get an amendment within those limits.
0: That's, that's, uh, that's pretty good. You're kind of dovetailing into my next set of questions here, which has to do with the mechanics. Um, in the mechanics specifically on how an amendment would come about from what I understand, Article 5 of the Constitution provides two avenues to amending the Constitution. The first and, and most well-known avenue is that Congress itself, uh, U.S. Congress, that is, <clears throat> excuse me, initiates the amendment process. And uh, that is, when two-thirds of majority in both the House of Representatives and the Senate deem it necessary, they can propose amendments to the Constitution. Um, the second uh, method, which I believe is being promoted by Wolfpack, is through the use of a constitutional convention or what you would call a limited constitutional convention, which can be called by two-thirds of the state legislatures to propose amendments. And um, that is, I think, what you're talking about there, when when you say limited, you mean it actually can be limited to a topic. And um, in, in both cases, three-fourths of the states, that is basically, uh, what, 38 states have to uh, ratify the amendments. So, um, so I guess... Uh, if I got that right, um, why I guess why the second method is that because because going back to move to amending and I think they're taking the first um, the first method which is more well more well known method of having Congress do the work but the second method is actually having the states do the work. Uh, do you see that as being more likely that the states would get on board with something like this? You see that as an easier battle or more
1: perhaps a more fruitful uh, use of your time? Uh, first, I want to push back on a couple of things in your premise. So, just very minor. Uh, Move to amend used to be solely about the method of going through Congress. Uh, they have uh, since come around and are open to the convention method as well. Um, the uh, and and I applaud uh, I applaud them for uh, looking through that and and making that change. Uh, we don't work with them much, but we should start working with them more often. Actually, so uh, I've been meaning to reach out to them to to talk about working together more. Um, then the other thing you said that the uh that um the convention method you called the second method uh i would argue that it's the first method um in the very first draft of the constitution the virginia plan put out by james madison uh he said that there should be a method of amending the national uh, constitution um that does not require the assent of the national legislature um and that then came through and eventually became the article five convention method. Uh, there are some people who push back and don't like to call that uh, an, a constitutional convention. Um, in the scholarly writing, it is often called a constitutional convention. So instead I just talk about different kinds of constitutional conventions and they have different roles, different limitations, different purposes. Um, although there are some people who don't like that, that terminology. Uh, they call it a, a uh, an amending convention or some other term to distinguish it from other kinds of conventions that deal with constitutional issue. Um, but it's uh, the other thing to note is that this method has always had an important role to play. Uh, and that goes back, it's been used in more than half of the amendments uh, that we have in our constitution now, uh, going back to the Bill of Rights. Um, in the, uh, in the time period when we were ratifying the U.S. Constitution using Article 7 constitutional conventions, that's a, a different part of the Constitution, uh, the, the provision of the Constitution to actually ratify the Constitution used conventions in the States to do so. Um, in the New York State Convention, uh, there was a big debate about whether they should ratify the Constitution or propose a new Philadelphia-style constitutional convention uh and and the philadelphia style one is one that's not within the constitution it's an open convention that's open to everything its purpose is to write a new constitution uh they wanted to go back and do something like that uh whereas the federalists like uh like james madison not james madison um he was in virginia the federalists like uh alexander hamilton and john jay were pushing back strongly against that idea um Once the ninth state was ratified in New Hampshire, uh, Alexander Hamilton actually paid for a Pony Express rider to wait in New Hampshire and ride down to Poughkeepsie, where New York was holding its convention, to tell them the news as soon as it happened. Because once we had that ninth state, that meant the Constitution was now in effect. It meant that nine states had agreed that they were going to pull out of the Articles of Confederation, which was essentially a treaty among sovereign nations. And that those nine states were now going to form this new nation under the Constitution. And the question for New York was no longer whether it could um, influence what the Constitution said before it went into effect. The question was, are you in or are you out of this new nation? Um, And not every state was in. Uh, Rhode Island decided that they did not want to be in, and they were their own country for a a couple of years. They even sent a letter to George Washington asking for good foreign relations before they... uh, ultimately changed their mind and ratify the Constitution. Um, but in New York, that was enough to convince them that they they should be in. Uh, but they still wanted to have the amendments that New York and other states had been pushing for at their own state ratifying conventions. Um, and so uh, it, it was proposed and then and it was written by John Jay, who later became the first U.S Supreme Court Chief Justice, uh, that they write a letter, to send all the states to call for um, a convention now under Article 5, now that this was part of the Constitution. They all had strong disagreements about whether to call a new Philadelphia-style convention, but now that Article 5 in the Constitution was a thing, they unanimously agreed to call for a convention under Article 5 to propose the amendments that the states had um, had proposed at their state ratifying conventions. Uh, the New York and Virginia legislatures ultimately uh, followed the suggestion of the New York Convention and did propose in 1788 and 1789 uh, a convention for doing so. Uh, the other states took a look at it and um, the prevailing wisdom was that they wanted to see if Congress was going to do something first before they got involved. Um, and uh, James Madison responded to pressure from people like Alexander Hamilton and others who argued that the uh, this a uh, quote i may be slightly misquoting him but you can see in wolf-pack.com slash hamilton um the exact quote there um that the zeal for amendments ought to be uh met with uh uh, um with answer rather than i forget the exact wording but he wanted madison to work on actually amending the constitution rather than fighting against it um that way he could uh make sure that the amendments were something that he also agreed with um, and so Madison then wrote the Bill of Rights, which he was initially against doing. Uh, initially, he wanted to see the the Constitution work for a while before there were any amendments at all. Um, but he was afraid that given some of the proposals that some of the states wanted to see, uh, that some of those ideas would prevail. And he didn't want the Constitution being tinkered with at that level before the states had actually seen it function. Um, Madison didn't oppose the idea of a. Uh, an article 5 convention in general uh, he supported one uh as one of the many methods that he sought to get rid of the alien and sedition acts um but he opposed that one at that time because he thought that congress should be proposing the amendments uh first before, given that the states had not yet seen congress operate and he didn't want them to make fundamental changes that early on uh, but later on for the alien and sedition acts uh he was happy to propose using the uh the Article Five Convention process. Then, um, so you know, that was a, a pretty good record. The very first time we used we used this process, what it got us was the Bill of Rights, um, and it's been used since then in in, uh, in minor ways for um, the 13th Amendment to get rid of slavery. Uh, it's been used in minor ways for prohibition, uh, getting rid of prohibition. That is, um, it's been used in minor ways for uh, for uh, presidential term limits. Uh, and it was used in a very major way for the 17th amendment, which is direct election of senators. Um, and that's one that Wolfpack sees as a very close parallel to what we're doing here. Um, in that case, uh, and wolf slash resources, you can see the story, um, in, uh, in encyclopedia on constitutional law, or treatise of constitutional law, details the story very, very well there. um. And it explains that there were different groups working on this issue of direct election of senators Uh, because at the time the Senate was known as the Millionaires Club, and that was millionaires by the standards of that day. It was um, a very corrupt institution, very much like it is today. Um, And there were some states, there was the Oregon Plan, which was working on... um, having unofficial elections that were in advisory capacity. Uh, later Supreme court decisions said that that probably would have been considered unconstitutional if it ever got to the Supreme court, but it was only a temporary measure. So it, it, um, it survived long enough until it was no longer needed. Um, and then there were other activists who were working on pushing uh, legislators to appoint better senators. I, uh, but One of the biggest efforts that had probably the most impact of any of them, uh, there was a group of legislators in Pennsylvania who called for the use of the Article V convention process to get direct election of senators uh, because they knew that the Senate was never going to propose to change its own makeup. Um, So in 1901, Pennsylvania and along with several other states called for an Article V Uh, and that spread around the country, 1902, 1903, all the way through 1911. We got within one or two states shy of an Article Five convention. Those efforts to do that worked hand in glove with the efforts in Oregon and other places um, that, uh, were, uh, that were using other methods uh, because the political activism awakened by the convention effort helped the other efforts. And the political activism of those other efforts helped push through the convention efforts They worked together so that um, by the time they were only one or two states away from a convention, the Senate by that point also consisted of senators, many of whom had been elected or were uh, in favor of uh, of an election process. Uh, so feeling that pressure of seeing the power to amend the Constitution taken away from them. Uh, And the embarrassment of that, they opted to write the amendment themselves and propose it themselves. And that's how we ended up with the 17th Amendment, um, which was part of a series of reforms uh, in what's called the Progressive Era that ended the Gilded Age. Uh, When I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, to bring it full circle, um, that the 1970s ended a a period of many decades um, where things were in the process of getting better. That process started with measures like the 17th Amendment, like the uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, like the uh, State Corrupt Practices Acts that various states had passed, including Montana, which passed the Montana Corrupt Practices Act um, in 1912. uh, And it ended the stranglehold that the Copper Barons had on that state. And that stood for 100 years, almost exactly, until in the wake of Citizens United, the Supreme Court threw that law out. Um, in a decision called American Tradition Partnership v. Bullock. Uh, it was a one-paragraph, unsigned decision with no oral argument uh, that ended a century of very effective campaign finance law in Montana. Um, and this has reversed the process that we saw be so effective early in the century. That's how we know both that the process of the Five Convention method is effective because we've used it for this kind of purpose before, and we've seen it be effective. And we know that the policy of getting um, anti-corruption measures into the Constitution and anti-corruption measures into law can be very effective in fighting back against really thoroughly entrenched corruption in Congress, and that that can be stable for decades to come if it's done properly.
0: That's quite an explanation. I learned a lot. I just feel like I'm in my history class. This is uh, this is really um, fascinating stuff. And, and just as a review of the the way the Constitution was originally written, from what I understand, the senators were actually appointed by the state legislature. Yes, they were not voted directly by the people. And the Seventeenth Amendment turned that one around. And it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, this happened during the Progressive Era and um, you know the early 1900s. And it's it's interesting to me that uh, that era also created the uh, right for women to vote. Uh, mm-hmm. Collective labor seemed to, to gain a lot of uh, traction during that time. Uh, child labor laws were um, were going into effect around that same time there, and um, I, I guess what you're saying essentially now they are, we're reversing a lot of that progress and kind of reverting back and. Um, So this method of having the states actually get together to propose a constitutional convention, or what you would say a limited constitutional convention, is, uh, as you mentioned, with the 17th Amendment, they got very, very close, and then finally, Congress decided to get out ahead of it
1: and and do the amendment themselves. But the end effect was the same. And that's most likely what's going to happen here. Mm -hmm. Um, I expect that groups like American Promise and others that are working at the congressional level will ultimately be successful but they will not be successful until wolfpack gets close that kind of pressure put on congress of seeing the ability to write the amendment taken away from them is what will allow them to be successful so if you support going through the congressional method uh that's fine i i have a lot of friends who are uh who are working out with american promise and american promise works very closely with wolfpack um but if you support that method you should also support what we're doing
0: yeah, it's a, it's a two-pronged approach. They, they aren't mutually exclusive, are they?
1: No, absolutely not. No. So uh, how many states are on board at this point? So at this point, because of the rescissions, we're down from five to three. Um, and that's why we've been going through for the last few years uh, of retooling our um, our approach to try to build power, uh, because we need to fight back against the, the much better funded opponents um, who have... Uh, close relationships with leadership in the state legislature. Uh, We're modeling that approach on um, a group called the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform. Um, This happened in uh, 1928. Uh, 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 Presidential candidate Al Smith was running on the anti-prohibition platform, and all of the anti-prohibition groups put all their eggs in that basket, pushed real hard for President Al Smith, and as you may May know we never had a president Al Smith. He lost, and that was the absolute lowest point in that movement. They were completely devastated. Um, and a woman by the name of Pauline Sabin, uh, who was uh, a delegate at the Republican National Convention, uh, she formed a group with uh, with a handful of women, a couple of dozen women, um, and they decided that they were going to take a different approach. Uh, a lot of them were married to men who were part of other groups that had pushed for Al Smith. Others were not. Um, they wanted it to be first, bipartisan, and second, they wanted it to be populist. Um, and the way they did that was by going around the country and talking to people of all different um, all different walks of life uh, and making sure that they were not just supportive, but were active members and were going out and recruiting more people. Um, they wanted them to uh, to not just uh, encourage the movement, but to join the movement, to be a part of the movement, um, which is how in the first year they went from 50 people to 350 people. And that's how in the second year they went from 350 people to 50,000 people. Um, and by that time in 1930, they were able to uh, influence elections on both the the Democrats and Republicans pushing for um, anti-prohibition candidates. And by the 1932 election, when they had about 300,000 people. Uh, they were able to actually uh, be a, the second most important influence behind only the Great Depression in getting FDR elected president, as well as anti-prohibition candidates and both the Democratic and Republican Party, leading to a supermajority in Congress uh, that proposed uh, repealing prohibition, uh, which happened in 1933, only five years after the lowest point in the movement. Um, so we're in the process of of using those same methods and tools that we've learned uh from uh from the uh labor movement um with uh Jane McAlevey, we've done her training uh she's a major labor uh a labor activist who um uh and or major labor organizer who uh has studied this stuff thoroughly and we've gone through her training and developed our own version of it as well um and uh, That's how we're now trying to build up that support so that we can uh, go back from the three that we have now all the way up into March toward 34. And if we get to 34, that's fantastic. I happen to think that the best amendment would be written by the convention. But again, it's more likely that when we get close, Congress will write it. And that's fine too. My goal is not necessarily for Wolfpack to cross the finish line. My goal is for the finish line to get crossed.
0: Yeah, 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 of
1: course. I mean, uh, keep an eye on the
0: big picture here. Um, that's a, that's a, a um, seems to be a, a, as any, uh, amendment, it's a pretty big lift. Uh, would it be the 28th? Because we're, we still have the equal rights amendment, which is, seems to be waiting in the wings at this point too. So I wonder if that's ever going to, um, uh, cross the finish line as well.
1: Um, I mean, the Wolfpack has the opinion on that. I can give you my personal opinion just as somebody who's, who's studied the issues. Um, I, uh, I, I don't think that their current methods can work legally i think there's too many holes in their legal argument they're relying on invalidating um uh invalidating rescissions which i don't think would stand they're relying on um extending a deadline after it's been uh after it's expired which i don't think would stand uh i think that there's um there's too many hurdles with their current method i do think they have a path though Uh, which is not something they're currently trying. I would recommend that they try to uh, propose. um, The the amendment has been proposed by Congress by two thirds. Uh, I think they should start over with ratification, but using the Article 5 ratification method there. Uh, This was the method that was used to ratify the 21st Amendment. Um, It was said to state, which was the repeal of prohibition that I was just talking about. Um, It was said to state ratifying conventions rather than Two state legislatures. Um, just as there's two methods to propose an amendment, there's also two methods to ratify, um, and either method to propose can be paired with either method to ratify. Um, so I think if that went to state ratifying conventions, we found there, you know, a lot of people were nervous about using the Article Five ratification convention process because we had never had a convention under the Constitution since the Article Seven conventions that I mentioned earlier. Uh, that were used to ratify the Constitution itself. So people didn't really know how that process worked, much like people are nervous now about the Article V proposing convention. Um, But it actually worked extremely well. Um, The states were able to figure out very easily how to uh, to write laws, uh, some of them with very effective limitations. Uh, There was a New Mexico, uh, no, I'm sorry, Arizona law Uh, that said that any state, uh, any state delegate that violated um, their instruction sent to them by the voters uh, would have their vote invalidated and then they would be replaced with an alternate. So it was impossible for them to be a runaway delegate. Um, And we've actually seen that same exact scheme um, unanimously approved by the Supreme Court in 2020 as applied to the Electoral College uh, in Arizona, uh, where electors to the Electoral College, if they vote against their instructions, Uh, have seen their vote invalidated and replaced with an alternate. Uh, So we know that that method, which comes originally from uh, the area of conventions under Article 5, um, has been upheld unanimously by the Supreme Court. And um, a number of states have that in their... uh, This is just an aside. A number of states now have that in delegate protection language uh, that they passed in their states as well currently. Um, But I think that that method that was used... Uh, in, it went so smoothly that in in the case of um, Delaware, because all of the delegates had been instructed, it only took 45 minutes for them to just vote the way that they had been instructed. And then the last state to vote to ratify uh, was uh, notoriously dry Utah. Um, they knew it was such a big deal that they got national public radio uh, or a national radio broadcast. I don't think it wasn't NPR yet at that time, but they got a national radio broadcast in there to broadcast it live to the nation, which, given that it was nineteen thirty-three, that was very difficult to do. They paused the convention for several hours while they set it all up. Um, and I I think that same method that worked so effectively there would be the best way to go for um for the Equal Rights Amendment. I think starting over, they would they would need to get thirty four, but I don't think they have a path from where they are now. Or thirty eight rather. I don't think they have a path from where they are to thirty eight. Um, given those uh, legal hurdles and given the current state-of-state state legislatures. But I think they could do it using the, the convention route. Okay.
0: Well, the, uh, a couple things here is that the, uh, you, you touched on something there. I want to kind of digress a little bit, but you talked about constitutional amendment, um, I'm sorry, constitutional conventions. Um, that does strike fear in, a, in the heart of a guy like me you know when people start talking about that, and I'm very careful to say limited constitutional convention, is it? Uh, which means okay, it's a single topic thing. Because a general constitutional, I guess you would call an open constitutional convention, would um, would mean everything's on the table, right? The entire constitution is now open to being changed. And yeah, and that's why no states have called yeah. for that since yeah. 1929.
1: Most of the states that have called for that have since rescinded their calls. Um, there's uh there is um there have been dozens and dozens of calls for a convention uh in the last hundred and uh some odd years but since 1929 um not a single one has been for an open convention all of them have put strict limits and everybody who studies this stuff um there's a majority in a minority camp here uh the vast majority says that uh that those calls are enforceable. Uh, The minority uh, says that new limited convention calls are completely meaningless because according to the minority camp, uh, we've already had more than 34. So since that minority does not respect the limitations, once we hit 34, it was already too late. Um, So again, that's a minority view. It is a viable view that real scholars have proposed um, in, in the literature, but it is a minority view Uh, regardless, they all agree with the statement that I made earlier that there is no way that a new limited convention call like the ones that Wolfpack is pushing for could possibly lead to an amendment on any other topic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very reassuring. And I think that's, that's a point that should be emphasized when you, you know, roll this out to people that, you know, this is not something we're talking about, a a radical uh, change to the constitution. And, um, Let's just hope it doesn't take as long as I think it was the 27th uh, Amendment, which was um, that took like
1: 200 years, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it was 202, I think, something like that. Yeah. Per- um, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, again, that's uh, that one was part of the Bill of Rights originally. So that that is one of the ones that was influenced by the Article 5 prevention process. Oh, we are we doing? And it uh, was proposed, I think, in 1789. 89, as yeah. part of the Bill of Rights. Yeah. It was a, the original Second Amendment. Um, And as James Madison wrote it, um, the the First Amendment as we have it was the original Third Amendment. We adopted Amendments 3 through 12 originally. Um, The original First Amendment is still out there unratified. uh, That deals with the size of Congress. Oh, okay. Okay.
0: Good. Well, we're running up on the end of our
1: time right here. Uh,
0: this has been a fascinating interview. I, I've, um, I really, really uh, wish you guys a lot of luck in, in carrying this through and, and getting more people on board. It sounds like you know, there's a large grassroots type of operation that's necessary because you, know, you need to convince a lot of the rank and file, the re- regular people, that this is necessary for our own well-being and uh, to go into the future with elections that actually um, reflect the will of the people and not only the elections, but but uh, more importantly, the bills that are passed actually uh, reflect the will of the people rather than the will of the elite. Uh, how yep. can people uh, learn more about Wolfpack and get involved?
1: Uh, you can go to wolf-pack.com um, and you can uh, join as a volunteer there, wolf-pack.com slash go, I believe. Uh, you can also join our Discord directly at wolf-pack.com slash discord. Um, we welcome people coming in through that way. Um, and like I said, we need people in all 50 states. Uh, we're, um, we're in the process of building up our power base right now. And we, uh, need people, uh, to be working on that. Um, we also offer trainings about once a month. So, uh, we, uh, the one for July has not been scheduled yet, but there should be a training coming up for July that we offer to people, whether they're part of Wolfpack or not, um, that, which is our, the training that we adapted from, uh, Jane McAlevey's training. Um, that's useful for political organizing, uh, whether you're part of Wolfpack or any other group, uh, and that's open to everybody, uh, donations are welcome, but it's, uh, it's offered free. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, uh, we, we could use your help.
0: I look forward to seeing you guys there. That's, uh, really interesting that training would be very, very useful, I think. And you say it's not necessarily just for Wolfpack, but I'm sure that Wolfpack would, but, um, would obviously benefit from this, uh, training yeah. a lot of people on how to, um, to do political organizing. Uh, That's always good good training to have. We've been talking with Sam Fieldman, the National Council for Wolfpack. Sam, thank you for joining us today and giving us all kinds of information about Wolfpack and good luck to you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you'll tune in again next week.